So we're heading into a new section of this What Lies Ahead study. Of course, the overall series is What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. And we spent the last four weeks talking about the rapture, and we had a QA. and uh, a By the way, that Q&A was very well received. Got a lot of great feedback on that. So I plan to do that about every two or three sessions. We'll just dedicate the whole time to Q&A. So, uh, of course, you can always ask questions during our Bible study. But if you want to keep a running list or if you have some thoughts or things you'd like to dive into, you can look forward to that here in a couple of weeks. We'll do another one of those. Um, but uh, we're in the eighth, of, eighth part of this session on what lies ahead, and I'm excited because we're, we're heading into the book of Daniel. And we're going to spend at least two or three weeks here on Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, chapter 7, and chapter 9, which are absolutely explosive, dynamic prophecies. Uh, Dr. John Walvert, a mentor of mine, used to call Daniel the key, the key to understanding Bible prophecy. In other words, if you skip over Daniel or don't understand the significance of Daniel in Bible prophecy, you're really missing a huge chunk. Uh, even our Lord Jesus quotes from Daniel and attributes it to Daniel by name, which, by the way, is one of the reasons that we know that Daniel wrote Daniel. Um, a lot of liberal scholars and Bible teachers that don't believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible uh, have taken aim at Daniel and tried to suggest that Daniel, Daniel was a forgery or that it was written much later than it was. And the reason they do that is because it's so profoundly accurate. And you're going to see, not today, but in the coming weeks, probably next week when we get into Daniel 9, just how accurate it is to the day even, literally to the day. It's unbelievable. Um, so, uh, so many people in the liberal realm suggest that Daniel was not really written by Daniel, but I don't know about you. I'm going to go with our Lord on this one. He attributes it to Daniel, and uh, so we're going to go with him and, and assume uh, that Daniel wrote it. So a couple of quick uh, announcements, though, um, before we get started in, in Daniel uh, this morning. I wanted to mention that uh, the Not By Works bookstore is back up. It was down for a couple of days. Somebody alerted me to that. I don't know why. I think it was an, actually an attack uh, because I called the company that hosted it, and uh, they could not really give any reason why. Um, and so, But thankfully, it was only down for a day or two, and it's back up and running. Um, and so for that, I want to mention that uh, if you're watching this on video, you can still get the What Lies Ahead uh, book. I get one or two hits on this a week. Uh, for those of you here, there's I put some more out at the back of the auditorium, but if you do want to get it online, you can just go to the Not By Works website, click on store, and then be sure and use the, the coupon code uh, WLA. Uh, but, so I did want to mention that we're going to encourage everyone to uh, please, please, please sign up for the Not By Works newsletter, which is right there on the home page of our website. And the reason we're doing that is, as you, I'm sure, well know by now, big tech is absolutely attacking conservative Christian values and any body that, uh, you know, proclaims that. I've been shadow banned on YouTube. I've had videos taken off of YouTube because I dared to speak the truth. And it's only going to get worse. So uh, at this point, anyway, they can't take down your personal website. So uh, it Not By Works website gets a ton of traffic, and it's kind of become the clearinghouse uh, for all of our videos and audio files and notes and other resources. So just uh, if you would uh, help us out by subscribing right there on the homepage to uh, the newsletter. <clears throat> that way you'll be notified anytime we 
uh, produce anything new. I hope you're keeping up with Culture Shock, the new little short series that I'm putting out once or twice a week. It's eight to ten minutes. You can easily, uh, you know, listen to it either on the podcast or watch the videos, and it's easy, easily something to forward. You know, you forward like this, you know, series on what lies ahead. Each session's 45, 50 minutes. Not everybody has 45 or 50 minutes to dive into the deeper truths about Bible prophecy. I wish they did, uh, but they don't. But but if you send the little eight to ten minute things, people will tend to listen to those. And uh, we're dealing with different ways in which our culture is under attack and conservative Christian values are under attack. Last uh, one week that we did was on uh, the war on the unborn. We did one on censorship and uh, more to come. And the key is we always give the gospel at the very end. So no telling what audience this is reaching, but everybody that hears it will hear uh, the gospel. And Paul reminds us it's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation. So we want to continue to emphasize that. Uh, So yeah, that's just wanted to mention those things. You can subscribe to us on Rumble as well, so that when we get booted completely off of YouTube, uh, and if you're working for YouTube and listening to this, please don't boot me. I really like being on YouTube, but if you, we do, you can go to Rumble uh, and sign up for us there. Everything is simultaneously on both platforms. YouTube still by far gets the most traffic, and we want to reach as many people as we can with the gospel message. So. A lot of people have abandoned YouTube in principle, and I respect that, and I wish I could do that too. I totally get it. But for now, given our mission as a ministry, we want to reach people, and that's still the biggest uh, platform. But we're also on Rumble so that you can uh, be prepared if you show up on YouTube one day and Not By Works is not there. If you do show up on YouTube and Not By Works is there, call me and make sure I'm still here. Make sure they didn't put me in Gitmo or something, all right? Okay, so let's, uh, let's kind of... Remember where we've been here. We talked about why we should study the end times. Uh, We talked about the big picture. Don't forget that because this is all kind of working toward that theme of God's unconditional covenant promise guaranteeing a kingdom someday, a literal earthly kingdom. And uh, so, you know, a lot of people suggest that all of this stuff is figurative. People don't teach the end times anymore. Uh, I was talking to someone this week about that. I've come up with a a new a name for that group. It's called the 84 percenters. Those are the 80. Those are the pastors and Bible teachers that teach only 84 percent of the Bible, right? Because 16 percent of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. Okay, and so uh, we believe that you should teach the whole counsel of God. And why would anybody who proclaims to love the Lord and love His Word and value the Bible as their standard for life and practice ignore 16 percent of the Bible? It doesn't make sense. So we're a hundred percent club. Uh, here at uh, Plum Creek. So uh, so we talked about that guarantee, and we do believe that it's going to come to pass. We talked about how the church is not Israel, the church has not replaced Israel, and how we're waiting patiently for this kingdom. And then we talked about the mystery of the rapture, how the Lord is going to rescue His bride, the church, one day from the outpouring of His wrath. That's the prophetic wrath of the Lord that the Old Testament prophets warned about, that Jesus talked about. And that the book of Revelation details. And so we are not appointed to suffer wrath. God has promised we will be rescued before the prophetic day of the Lord's wrath, which is that seven-year period, which is what we're going to be talking about in this series on Daniel. So, And then we talked about how the rapture is imminent, rescued at any moment. So that brings us now to Daniel's explosive prophecies. And what we want to do this morning is just introduce Daniel and really kind of put it in context and, and help you see why these prophecies are so crucial to understanding that 16% of the Bible that has yet to be 
uh, fulfilled. Uh, so let's uh, put up our chart that we kind of are using as a home base as we work our way through this material. We're talking uh, in this next couple of weeks about this seven-year period that the book of Daniel calls the 70th week. Uh, those of you who've studied Bible prophecy might be familiar with the uh, 70 weeks prophecy. I've taken to calling it the 490 year prophecy because that's what it is. Uh, and a lot of people who haven't really grown up in church or been around a lot of Bible prophecy teaching, when you hear 70 weeks, that, that really has no context or meaning. But as we shall see when we get there, uh, the word week in Hebrew uh, means in the context here plainly, seven-year period. So 77-year periods means 490 years. The first, first 483 of those, as we shall see, have already been fulfilled in history. And again, to the day. We know the precise day on which they started. We know the precise day on which the 483rd year ended. And the final seven years are what are yet future. And so that is the seven-year period that we refer to as the seven-year tribulation, uh, the 70th week, the great day of the Lord's wrath, the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, the day of the Lord, the great tribulation, the overflowing scourge. There are a lot of different terms that the biblical authors use to refer to that same seven-year period. Uh, but that's what we're going to be uh, leading up to. So let's look at some context. Uh, you know, God, God's people in Daniel's day were not unlike us. They were becoming impatient for the promised kingdom to arrive. And so God gives two visions, if you will, um, in chapters 2 and 7, which we're going to look, look at first. We don't have time to get through both of them today, but we'll get started and pick up where we end up next week. But in chapter 2, it's a vision of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he tries to get people to interpret it, his own magicians and so forth, and they can't. Uh, and if you remember, what was, the, uh, what was the added little glitch that Nebuchadnezzar wanted? He didn't just want them to interpret the dream. What else? That's right. He wanted them to tell him what the dream was. So he calls his magicians together. Hey, guys, I had this dream, and I really need uh, to, it, it to be interpreted. And they're like, okay, great, tell us the dream. Because if someone tells you a dream, you, you know, anybody can make up an interpretation, right? I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and do a lot of research on a lot of different topics and one of them that I've done a lot of research on through the years is dreams and uh, it's kind of funny to see what's out there and you'll hear people do call-in shows and someone say I had this dream and then the person will just rattle off of interpretation and then they hang up they never see him again well who knows if it was an accurate interpretation or not but uh, so these magicians go great Daniel tell us the dream or great to Nebuchadnezzar tell us the dream and we'll be happy to, to tell you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, uh, I can't remember. <laughs> you tell me the dream, then you tell me the interpretation. Well, of course, they couldn't do it. Daniel comes along, and through God's help, Daniel gives us this fascinating vision and interpretation of world history from man's point of view. That's Daniel too. Then, in chapter 7, we have another vision. This time, Daniel's the one that has the vision. And it's uh, giving a world history from God's point of view. All right, so that's, and then you get to chapter 9, and it zeroes in more granular on a specific time period. And I don't want to get too far ahead of us because we're going to get there in the coming weeks, but 
basically, if you remember, Jeremiah, the prophet, who was a contemporary of Daniel, had prophesied that Israel would be in captivity, or Judah, for 70 years. You remember that? And so by the time Daniel comes on the scene, it's getting close to the end of the 70 years. And Daniel sort of looks at his calendar on the wall, and the people do, and they're like, hey, what's next? You know, what comes after this? <laughs> and so Daniel prays in chapter 9. Not a bad thing when you're looking for direction, right? Go to the Lord. And he says, Lord, basically what's next? And so God reveals to him the next 490-year plan. And uh, that's what we call the 70 weeks prophecy. So uh, time-wise, we're looking at the 6th century B.C. Uh, I'm going to give you a chart here in a moment. We'll spend some time on, and it's, uh, I think it's in the chart book. Uh, but if not, if someone would like this chart, just email me. I'm happy to send it to you in just the one I'm showing you here in just a minute. But chapter 1 introduces Daniel and talks about his personal integrity. Chapters 2 through 7 are all about God's program for the world from the Gentile perspective. And then chapters 8 through 12 are God's program for Israel, specifically the coming kingdom. He talks about the Antichrist, talks about Antiochus there in the 2nd century uh, BC, but then ultimately also specifically talks about uh, the Antichrist. So uh, one of the things that I learned to do years ago, uh, and you probably had to do this too, John, at Dallas Seminary, was to diagram and chart out books of the Bible. So obviously in seminary, you uh, at least at Dallas Seminary, you take every book of the Bible, in addition to all the theologies and Greek and Hebrew and pastoral leadership and whatever other electives and things you want to take. Uh, so when you took Bible exposition courses, one of the requirements was to be able to chart them out and see them, the big picture. So this is my chart of Daniel, and we'll just kind of walk through it. And it's worth the time because Daniel is, again, so critical to understanding God's uh, plan of the ages. So the theme of Daniel is found in chapter 4, verse 17. The most high rules in the kingdom of men. The most high rules in the kingdom of men. And again, if you'd like this chart, I'll send you a PDF. Just email me. Don't feel like you've got to write all of this down because I'm going to throw a lot of data at you. So think about that verse for just a moment. The most high rules in the kingdom of men. And then think about the series we did not too long ago called Spirit of the Antichrist, where we looked at the Luciferian agenda to take over the world and the kingdoms in conflict, the cosmic struggle between Satan and God to take over this planet, and God's plan, which he's already won and already revealed to us in his word, for those who take the time to read it, is to make all things new, to bring the world full circle to a recreated, sinless, utopian creation in the new heavens and the new earth. And we need to understand that even though along the way there are dark and terrible times, and certainly if we just look at the last 2,000 years of church history, uh, God's people, uh, the church, have suffered unbelievable and unspeakable persecution, and they still are today. We've been very uh, privileged and sheltered uh, in America in that we've not faced the kind of persecution that many other parts of the world have. I believe that's changing and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but I, I believe that could very well change in our lifetime. Uh, and I think it might even be rapidly. So we're about to kind of see what, it, what it's really like uh, to fulfill Paul's teaching when he said in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 12, I think it is, uh, 
All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, right? So, uh, but in spite of it all, what we need to understand is the testimony of Scripture, and certainly the testimony of Daniel makes plain, that God is in control, that God is ruling over the kingdoms of men. We don't understand why he allows certain things to happen. Uh, my devotional this week, if you haven't seen it, it's in your email inbox, or you can get to it from the church website or the Not By Works website, um, is, on, is called Life's Puzzles. And I talk about how uh, you know, sometimes there are things we can't understand, and we don't like that. We like to have everything fit in its place and everything add up, and we like to, to, to understand all of the whys and what fors, but it doesn't always work that way. But God knows, God understands, and even though we live in a fallen world, He is working out His plan. The Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. And then if you look at the chapters, chapters 1 through 4 are all about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Chapter 5, the scene shifts to Belshazzar and Babylon, the leader there. And then it moves into Persia with Darius, the ruler. And then back to Belshazzar, and then back to Darius. And then it closes out with the Cyrus and, and, and the later rulers in Medo-Persia uh, there. Um, so the first six chapters are historical, and the final six chapters are prophetic. Okay, So he talks about all of the empires that are going to, to rule in history, and then he talks about that future revived uh, Roman Empire and other things yet to come. In the first six chapters, roughly the first half or so here, Daniel interprets the king's dreams. But in the last half, it's an angel interpreting Daniel's dreams. Uh, the first chapter talks about the uh, Jews being in Babylonian captivity. And then, as I mentioned, it gets into God's program for the world and then God's program for Israel. Uh, one of the unique features of Daniel um, and uh, Ezekiel is like this, is that because of the time period in which it was written, it's not all written in Hebrew. First chapter is written in Hebrew. Then it switches to Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonians. And then it switches back to Hebrew. So a lot of times we talk and think about the biblical languages as being Hebrew and Greek, Old Testament and New Testament. But remember, there are small portions of the Old Testament in Daniel and Ezekiel that were written in Aramaic. So Aramaic is one of the Semitic languages. It's it's not, you know, it's similar to Hebrew, but it's, it's different. It'd be kind of like studying, say, Portuguese and Spanish. They're definitely different, but, you know, you can kind of pick, 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 pick it up if you have to. So then if we go chapter by chapter, I mentioned Daniel chapter 1 is about Daniel's integrity. Chapter 2 is the famous statue, that, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and he asks for people to interpret it. And then you remember the story of the fiery furnace, the three Hebrew children refuse to uh, bow down and worship uh, the, the king, the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so they're tossed into the fiery furnace, but of course they are rescued. And one of the most profound statements in there, echoing the theme that God is in control, that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, is when the Hebrew children say, look, you know, we believe God is able to rescue us from this fire, O king, Nebuchadnezzar. But even if he doesn't, he's still God. And we will not bow down and worship this image. So, I mean, a lot of times in retrospect, we, uh, we, we look at 
stories that, that have rough sides and they come out okay. And Daniel and the three Hebrew children is one of those, right? It's easy to look back and say, yay God, when God rescues them from the furnace. But we need to understand on the front side of that, their faith was, uh, you know, was strong. It was like Job who said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And they were prepared. God is still God, even if you don't come through the fire, is the idea. Someone sent me an outstanding message from several years ago. Um, and, you know, as you can imagine, I get a lot of things like that. People wanting me to read things or watch things or do things. And I try to watch most of that. You know, but for some reason, people think, uh, right, John and Jim, that pastors have nothing but time on their hands to read. So since you're only working on Sundays, here's seven books that I read in the last year. Would you please let me know what you think by next Sunday? You know, that's kind of the way it works. But, um, but this one, the person who sent to me said, look, please take the time and watch this. It'll be a blessing. And so I thought, wow, and I respected the person, so I did. And man, it was a blessing. But it was a personal testimony of a fellow who, you know, who, who went through a season where God didn't resolve it. It didn't, you know, it didn't come out okay. And, uh, and he still awaits heaven someday to find out the why. And that's what faith really is, isn't it? Um, and we've all been through seasons like that. Um, and, uh, and in this case, the, the Lord rescued them and rewarded their faith. Sometimes the reward for faithfulness awaits uh, eternity. Uh, and then uh, you remember the story about Nebuchadnezzar and his humiliation when he's made to uh, you know, eat grass and walk around like a cattle. And then the famous handwriting on the wall. Boy, don't you wish God still did that today? It sure make life a lot easier. Lord, I'm going to look at the wall. Go ahead, just start writing. What do I do? You know? But he gives us everything we need for life and godliness right here. Um, but uh, he wrote on the wall. And then, of course, Daniel in the lion's den. And then we have chapter 7, which we're going to spend some time on, Daniel's vision of the beasts, again, giving us a picture of world history and, and God's plan for the world. Then that deals with Antiochus Epiphanes, that was the Greek ruler during that latter part of the, the four kingdoms that kind of emanated from uh, Alexander the Great's uh, kingdom in, in the Greek world. And um, it, it, scholars differ on the, the real implications of Antiochus. First of all, it certainly was a spot-on prophecy of what happened a couple hundred years later. But it also, clearly, there are parallels between Antiochus and the future Antichrist that Daniel also talks about. And so it seems as though, if nothing else, uh, Antio the prophecies about Antiochus were foreshadowing what it was going to be like someday in the, in the end times in, in, when the Antichrist takes the, the helm. Uh, and then you get into Daniel's famous 70 weeks prophecy, uh, which we'll talk a lot about. And then uh, the last couple of chapters are about Daniel's vision of the future an Antichrist and um, the Great Tribulation. And if you think back, if you were here for the Spirit of the Antichrist series, uh, we did spend some time looking at a few passages in Daniel chapter 11 and 12. Uh, to give us some information about the characteristics of uh, the Antichrist. So that's just sort of a macro level overview of Daniel. And we're going to zero in on chapters 2, 7, and 9. And again, the question on the minds of Daniel's audience back in the day was, after 70 years of captivity, can God still be trusted? So this is directly relevant for us today as the church. 
Because here we sit, not after 70 years, but after 2,000 years, when the Lord himself promised he would return, when on the Mount of Ascension the men in white raiment promised the early disciples that he would so come in like manner, when the apostles in their writings of the New Testament said again and again we should eagerly wait for his return, it's the blessed hope it's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Look up, be watchful, Jesus said, it's going to happen. And, uh, and yet it hasn't happened yet. And so I don't have this on the screen, but if you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, we've talked about this before, but it, it, it comes to mind right now. 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter tells us that in, in verse 3, in the last days scoffers will come, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, you've been talking about this promised kingdom that God covenanted with, with Abraham 2,000 years before Christ. And if, if, they were, if these scoffers were in Peter's day, they would say 2,000 years ago. And, uh, but now it's been 4,000 years. And we know that Peter predicts that this is going to happen, that people are going to continue to scoff, and they're going to say, yeah, you've been predicting the rapture for 2,000 years. Where is it? Where is it? You know. And so when you hear that, actually in a strange sort of way, as discouraging as it is, uh, it's also encouraging because it's a sign of the times in and of itself. The more people there are shunning Bible prophecy, and making fun of those who teach 100% of the Bible and not just 84%, then that just means we're getting closer because Peter said that's going to happen. That's going to happen. And so, uh, I mean, all of Scripture is profitable, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised, but I really think that Daniel's prophecies, given the context and the parallels with our day-to-day, -day, are extremely re relevant for us. Because I want the Lord to come back more now than ever. And, and I was talking to someone this week, and they talked about how they feel kind of guilty wishing for the rapture, you know, because, uh, you know, we're so thin-skinned. People have given the ultimate sacrifice for so many centuries uh, in the church age, and we've been blessed. You know, God, I don't know why in His sovereignty He chose to allow me to be born in the United States of America, in, more, in this contemporary age when we have so many blessings and so much technology and so many advantages. And I don't know why he allowed me to grow up where I can bring a Bible to school and go to Cougars for Christ, my once-a-week Christian club at my high school, and, and, and pray with my Christian friends over the lunch table. And I don't know why he allows me to grow up in a place where we can boldly come to a wonderful place like this and open the Word of God and sing praises and pray and teach the Bible and share the gospel unashamedly. But he did. But that may be changing. And what we need to do is sort of have our, our worldview shaken a bit to recognize that this normalcy bias that we're all prone to is about to get rocked. And, and we may experience what, frankly, has been the norm for many, many people and many, many cultures around the world. And uh, so, yeah, we want the Lord to come back, and I wish it were today. But, in fact, people have predicted, you know, the Lord. The, the, the fact that he's been delayed in his return has led many people to, 
maybe for well-intentioned reasons, to try to set dates. Uh, in one of my lectures, in, in, in uh, one of the classes I taught at a college, I went through and gave several examples of this. It's fascinating. You can just Google it. Don't Google it, but use DuckDuckGo and put in the search box, you know, uh, end of the world predictions or something, and you'll see all kinds of people that talk about the return of the Lord. And um, some of them are shysters. Some of them are just looking to make a quick buck. Um, but a lot of them are just kind of like you and me, come Lord Jesus, and then they just, they want it to happen so badly, they start to look deeply in the scriptures, and they make the mistake of reading between the lines, and connecting dots that don't connect, um, and it, it, it leads to a lot of disappointment, and a lot of false doctrine. Um, you know, we're not told when it will be. Jesus specifically told the disciples on the Mount of Ascension, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Just be faithful, be busy, do the Father's work. I'll come back and inaugurate the kingdom when the time is right. Yeah. Along these lines, you see every so often someone saying, okay, I've got it figured out. This is the day. Yeah, yeah. And then it's not. No, that's it. They, 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 they dig deep into scriptures and they, they focus on things that, they, that are not intended to be prophetic. For example, Psalm 83, or the Shemitahs, or the blood moons, or those kinds of things. Or they'll um, mis uh, misapply prophetic teaching and make it out to be symbolic. Let me give you a perfect example of that. Um, look at uh, Matthew 24. Again, I don't have this on the screen, but you'll be familiar with this passage, I'm sure many of you. So Matthew 24, 32, Jesus says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. All right, so a lot of people uh, thought that the budding of the fig tree was was full, was a prophecy and by the way it's not a prophecy let's read it again what are the first three four words of verse 32 now learn this parable it's a parable not a prophecy okay but a lot of people mistakenly took it for a prophecy and then furthermore they completely misunderstood his reference to the word generation and they said oh a generation is 40 years uh, the fig tree must be Israel, and the fig tree budding must be Israel being coming a nation again. So Israel became a nation May 15, 1948. A generation is 40 years. That means the rapture is going to happen by 1988. Remember that? Yes. A lot of people wrote a lot of books about that. They're still doing that, by the way. And I still see references to the fig tree as being Israel and the generation as being 40 years. People I respect. Uh, and and they, we see eye to eye on so many things, but they've been so influenced by this uh, uh, teaching that they can't sort of let go of it. And uh, so what that gave rise to is a lot of people predicting uh, that the rapture was going to happen in 1988. I can remember at the time I was a college student, and uh, I, there was a guy traveling the country named Edgar Wisenant. Uh, promoting his book, a little paperback booklet called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988. And he came to Houston, where I lived at the time, and I went to hear him. I was, I've always been passionate about the end times. And even though 
you know, I, I wasn't nearly as studied and refined in my uh, thought as I have become over the last, you know, 30 some odd years. Uh, I, I was smart enough to know at the time, as I was sitting listening to him, that the guy was nuts. In fact, okay. he was so nuts, and I didn't know anything about him. I knew nothing. I just knew he's promoting this book and he's making a splash and I want the rapture to happen. Let's go here. I got up and left in the middle of it. Uh, it was just, it was that bad. But of course, the rapture didn't happen in, in 1988. And then so Wizenot then put out a revised book the next year called 89 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 89, in which he explained he had made a cal mathematical calculation error and here's what he missed, and here's why it's going to happen in 89, in September. And, of course, it didn't. And I kid you not, he came out with a book in 1990 called 90 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1990. And that went on until about 95 or 96. If you go to Amazon and you Google it, you can still find in the marketplace, not, it's not in print, but these little booklets that people are reselling. 91 Reasons, 92 Reasons, and 92, 93 Reasons, 93, and so forth. Uh, and then it stopped. So we can only draw one or two conclusions. Either the rapture happened in 96 and he was the only one that got taken, or he just finally gave up and quit trying to set dates. Right? And I think it's the latter. So, But back to this passage, since I kind of teased you a little bit, I might as well tell you what it's really talking about. So remember the context of the Olivet Discourse, which is what this is, Matthew 24 and 25. It's also included in Mark 13 and in uh, Luke 21, and Jesus is answering a very simple question from the disciples. Lord, what will be the sign of your return to establish your kingdom? That's, that's all he's answering. They want to know. They, Luke had told us that a few days earlier, that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the disciples thought, this is from Luke 19, that the kingdom was going to come right then. Luke tells us that's what they thought. And Jesus at the time told them a par another parable to let them know, ah, not so fast. Uh, there's going to be a delay, and it's going to be the king is going to go away for a while. He'll come back later. But they still didn't get it, right? Is that you or me? That is really bizarre. It's not me. Oh, it's the TV. Sorry, those of you watching this on video, video, our uh, one of our flat screens in the auditorium here just became demon possessed. So we're trying to uh, <laughs> trying to exercise that. But anyway, you can watch one of the other screens. Just get the TV remote, and then I think if you push uh, menu or something, it'll. There you go. Turn it off. If all else fails, turn it off. Right. Uh, and you should be able to turn it back on, and it should be fine now. But anyway, so. Jesus is answering the question, when are you going to come back and establish the kingdom? The disciples thought it was going to happen right then. They didn't understand that you know, the, the cross had to come before the crown. The suffering had to come before he could reign, right? And so he answers, and, and he begins by telling them, starting in verse 3 all the way to verse, 20, uh, verse 31, all of the things that are going to happen in that 70th week of Daniel that we're going to talk about, that seven-year period. And it's the parallels between... Matthew 24, 3 to 31, and Revelation chapter 6 to 18 are striking. We're going to look at some of those. It's unbelievable how clear it is. And again, Jesus even mentions Daniel by name and talks about the abomination of desolation, which will happen at the three-and-a-half-year mark of that seven-year period. 
And then after telling them all of these specific signs and, and saying immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 29, the Son of Man will come back. Israel will be regathered into their land in fulfillment of all kinds of Old Testament prophecy. And then the rest of the Olivet Discourse, uh, certainly all the way through the first part of chapter 25, is all application. So like if this were a sermon, verses 3 to 31 are his answer, his exposition. Okay, you want to know? Look for this. When you see this and this and this and then this follows this and then this happens and he just goes through these signs. When you see these things, then you know that I'm coming back. Then after that, he gets into the application part, which is basically be ready, be watchful, look out, it's coming. And he's speaking to that future generation that will be alive at the time that these signs happen. So when he says, when he says the generation, uh, this generation will by no means pass away, he's talking about the generation that sees these signs, the signs he's just spent 30 verses talking about. The ones who see these signs will be the ones who see the coming of Christ. Simple. It's simple. And the fig tree is just an analogy. He's like, you know how when you see a fig tree and it sprouts, you, you kind of know summer's getting close? Well, the generation that sees all these things I just told you about, when they see that, they know my return is close. It has nothing to do with the, the people to whom he's speaking. It's not the generation to whom he's speaking. It's the generation about whom he's speaking. Very clear. And uh, so it has nothing to do with 40 years. Uh, it's just the generation that's alive at the time of these signs. And that completely parallels the teaching of Scripture elsewhere about the things that are going to be happening leading up to uh, the return of Christ. So any questions about, about that passage since we kind of opened that door a little bit? Uh, but you can see how, at first glance in English, it certainly sounds like, wow, you know, once the fig tree buds, whatever that is, because, of course, he doesn't, since it's a parable, he doesn't drill down into the details. The fig tree represents this, and the sprouts represent this. He just says, it's an analogy, a parable. When you see a fig tree bud, you know summer's near. Similarly, when you see these things, you know my return is near. Uh, but, uh, but still, people tend to think in terms of 40-year cycles. Uh, and tend to think of it in that way. Any questions or thoughts about that? Or comments? Yeah. What does he mean by the stars will fall from the sky? Yeah, so that's in verse 29. And, you know, we those are the cosmic signs that will accompany his return. When you read the book of Revelation, you see all kinds of cosmic signs and earthquakes and flashes and weird th cosmic things happening, you know, locusts and th things that are coming, that are happening in conjunction with his return, and particularly the bold judgments, the, the final series of seven judgments that happen right at the end of the tribulation, right in preparation for the Battle of Armageddon, there's some pretty wild stuff that's happening. So uh, I take it literally. I think it's cosmic signs. We don't know uh, what that means. We know one of the trumpet judgments is a star falling from heaven, you know, a comet or an asteroid. I never can tell the difference, but anyway. Uh, in fact, a lot of people, there's a... Uh, a uh, NASA is watching a star, a, uh, a comet or asteroid. I guess it is asteroid. Thank you, an asteroid. Uh, I forget what it's called. Do you remember, Jeff? We talked about this. I remember the name. Yeah, Wormwood. It's from Revelation eight. It's it's got a n different name, but it means Wormwood. That is predicted to come very close Earth. Do you remember it or no? Are you just stretching? Oh, Sorry. Sorry. See, you gotta not. You gotta be careful not to stretch. You might get called on. 
We have a prophetess. Uh, right that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, so anyway, a lot of people think and speculate that one reason that, that we've started the Space Force is because of what we can tell from science is, is coming down the pike. Um, and we want to put systems in place to prepare for that. Now, of course, there's other reasons that seem self-evident as well, which is warfare in the, the space arena uh, that other countries and nation states have developed, Russia and China, that we need to kind of defend against. But anyway, it's just an interesting thought. Yeah. It's Apophis. Apophis, that's it. Apophis or Apophis, A-P-O-P-H-I-S, is what NASA has named this asteroid. And again, you know, there's websites you can go to that are watching and tracking it. And depending on which scientists, you know, the official narrative is it's going to miss the Earth extremely close. But other non-sanctioned scientists have run the calculations and they're convinced it's going to be a dead hit, right? Pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, again, we don't make predictions. We're not trying to set dates, but... You know, you can see the signs of the times and you can say, well, if this does end up being that, if this does end up being the trumpet judgment of, you know, Revelation 8, then, which we won't know until after the fact, then that might mean the rapture is pretty close because it's, you know, that's predicted to think in the late 2020s, like 27, 28 is when it's supposed to hit. So you work back three and a half years from there because that's midway through the tribulation, you know, again, we don't do that. We're just looking at signs of the times and saying, you know, what if? It's interesting. Um, so, yeah, any other questions? Yeah. Well, I think it's fascinating that for these people that actually set dates, whether they're pastors or speakers or authors or whatever, that people, after the date comes and goes and they sold their things and everything, that people still follow them. I know. What is that about? Well, it's remember what Mark Twain said. It's easier to deceive people than to convince them they've been deceived. So, Or he said fool. It's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. So, no, I get it. I, I don't understand it. I mean, I thought a lot of times when, you know, f resources are tight and finances are tough, I thought, well, why don't I just do a live stream and predict <laughs> the rapture and sell it, you know. Uh -huh. For twenty nine ninety nine. this information can be yours. You know, uh -huh. P.O. Box, you know. But it's, I don't know. And again, I don't know that all of them are doing that. There are definitely some, some shysters and false prophets out there just looking to make a buck. But I think a good portion of, because I, I speak in those conferences and run in some of those circles. They're biblicists. They love the Lord. They want to be true to His Word. Their big picture overview of the teaching of God's Word is true. Pre-tribulational, dispensational, premillennial. But for some reason, their hermeneutic is a little bit off and they get, they're prone to these date-setting things. And... Um, you know, we just we just have to be faithful. So, all right. Well, we are out of time. So that's a good introduction to Daniel. We'll get into chapter two and that strange uh, statue next week. Don't miss it. I know it'll be a a good uh, helpful overview of God's plan of the ages. All right. Thanks. We're dismissed.